Welcome back. Um, thanks for braving the elements. It's fun. We have a handful of Tuesday morning students here, so they're never going to want to go back. I bet they just love us in the evening crew. Um, so uh, this week is a live teaching. If you didn't catch on, instead of watching Jen, here's the thing, guys. It's not that I think that I understand this text more than Jen by any means. I more just like scheduled out and like, okay, it's a 10-week study. When would be like maybe two good live teachings or whatever? Little did I know that this was the week with the weird foreskin stuff. <laughs> and some of you don't believe me because you know actually that we have talked about circumcision an odd amount as a women's ministry. But this one wasn't really planned. Um, but also just in case you're wondering, I do not watch Jen's teaching before I put together, um, my teaching, um, because I would totally just copy everything she said, <laughs> as anyone should. Um, but I do believe that this is, um, you know, that God's word is just so multifaceted and multi-layered that, you know, there's probably things that she put in the teaching that I don't hit on, um, possibly vice versa, um, but definitely just have been prayerful about what is it that we at the local church level, what do we as a family of women uh, need to focus on from God's word this week? So those are the things that are going through my mind. Um, I hope you enjoyed your small group and had good discussions. Ours, ours was good. Um, but yeah, we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 4 this week. Um, so let's just pray as we get started. Father, thank you so much for uh, bringing the women here tonight. Um, Lord, may we never come together without thankful hearts that there are other women who, in direct and indirect ways, remind us that you're so worth our pursuit, and you are such a um, wonderful and beautiful God and creator and savior. Um, so we are a thankful group of women, Lord. As we come before you, as we open up your word, would you... Um, challenge our minds, and would you um, poke at our hearts, Lord, and would you strengthen our hands? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, as we moved through our homework this week, I wonder if you guys started to feel excited, maybe like after day two. The ball was rolling, right? Like Moses was overcoming his doubts. He stopped dragging his feet and he is ready to head back to Egypt. So now that the storyline is moving forward, as we saw him and his family, they're on their way back to Egypt. And why are they going back there? It's because it is time for a showdown, a showdown between Pharaoh and Moses, or more rightly so, a showdown between Pharaoh and God. And so the scene is set, and it's like a clash of the titans. It's a battle of the gods, as the big story of the Bible would show us. And as we mentioned a couple times in the study, this is a showdown between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Do you know what I mean by that? This takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, where there was a foreboding promise to the serpent and a promise of hope from the seed of the woman, that someone would come from Eve who would crush the head of the snake. That same statement is being carried through Exodus, and as Moses and his family takes the road toward Egypt, that's what we are supposed to be anticipating. Thus far in the book of Exodus, 
Pharaoh, the multiple pharaohs even, have been um, constructed by the author as being bigger than life. He is so evil and so, um, so large and, and looming on the horizon that we are supposed to understand him as the epitome of evil. And so now it is time for a showdown. But on the road, so to speak, they hit a speed bump or we did, so to speak, as we're doing our homework and we're anticipating that the story is going and picking up momentum, it's more than just a speed bump. We actually hit a scene where we felt like maybe the story has derailed completely because we read, like on day three, that Moses and his family stop for the night and God sets out to kill Moses. It says, on the trip, At an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So we are halfway through week four, and we should be saying, what has happened to our storyline? How is it possible? Surely this little paragraph is a joke, a bad joke. The chosen deliverer is going to be killed by the God who called him. We should not just brush past a paragraph like that. What has happened to our storyline? What questions came to your mind, ladies, as you read that? I mean, how many of us have read Exodus over and over again in our Christian life and have never caught this weird little paragraph? I wonder what questions came to your mind, specifically what questions about God? You're allowed to ask them. You're allowed to be honest when the text kind of jumps up or when the text kind of rubs against you like sandpaper. So what questions did you ask about God? Did you say, wait a minute, is God temperamental? Is God moody? Is he irrational? Because surely, if anything, this scene, this weird scene in the middle of our week taught us that God must be cruel, he must be full of wrath, he must be angry. And we pause there before we go any deeper, and we acknowledge that so often in our life, this is the exact fear that lurks in the back of our mind. That we, like Moses, are at risk for exhausting God's mercy. Right? Don't we on bad days or in bad seasons or in bad lights have this exact same fear that we have tried God's patience one too many times. We, like Moses, have been slow to believe that our bad habits have reared their head again, our doubts, and if we're not careful, God will snap. Perhaps we need to be honest before we go any further in our text this week and say that sometimes we too are afraid that God will turn his back on us, that he will unleash his disappointment in us. And sadly, guys, if we think this way, we end up living in this reality. And this becomes our secret, like, thesis for life, that surely God's kindness is the exception, and his disappointment and his anger are the norm. So our goal tonight is to look at this text and say, Guys, is there any chance that in this scene, if we look at this weird scene in the middle of chapter 4 and we put it in context, could we find that we are wonderfully wrong about God 
in this way? Could we find in this text that it reveals not merely or not even solely the anger and wrath of God, but more so that it reveals the mercy of God? Could we dig in tonight and find the rich mercy of God? Let's now go back to the beginning. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 4 and take a look. What did we find in these first couple verses? We saw that Moses is still doubtful, right? The the carryover from chapter 3 is that Moses is doubtful, that he's fearful, but that God mercifully goes three more rounds with him, right? It was pretty easy to see that God was merciful at the beginning of this. Moses comes to God, and he brings up his new concern. He says, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? So it's kind of funny. He doesn't even actually acknowledge him right away. He just goes ahead on his... uh, his, uh, sign that he's going to show him. What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And it goes on. Here we see God providing three signs for him. First, the staff. Secondly, his hand becoming leprous and then getting healed again. And then third, kind of like a bonus one, talk to him about the Nile turning into blood. Each of these, God showing mercy to Moses as Moses kind of spun his wheels, as Moses kind of laid out the if-onlys, the what-ifs to God. Let's stop for just a second and make sure that we notice some cool observations here. So whenever we we, um, study the Bible, I like to just show you how I saw things, right? So you don't think I just like magically figured this out because I walked into the church offices. These are the study tips that, that Jen Wilkin and other people have taught me. We just start with observation. What did we see in this chunk of scripture? One thing that I saw is that the word hand was used over and over and over and over again. Not just one or two times, but the word hand was used nine times in just six verses. So the next step is interpretation. That's just where you say, why do I care? Why is this here? Why would Moses, the author, be repeating the use of that word so much? Why the repetition? And in our homework, we were given this little nod that hand was mentioned in the chapter before, but then it was God's hand. And so perhaps this was an invitation to contrast Moses' hand on repeat next to God's hand. By Moses' power, he could do nothing. His hand alone could do nothing, but the outstretched hand of God will do it. And there's so much more that we could say about these signs, but this is where immediately my heart was just pricked as I felt like I understood why Moses was spinning his wheels Because I know what it feels like to spin my wheels emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, right? That idea of like, I'm trying, but I am not moving forward (laughs) with the Lord. I'm burning a lot of energy. I'm causing a scene. I'm making a lot of noise, but I'm not actually getting unstuck in my doubts and in my fear. 
I relate with Moses and his, but what if? Yeah, God, but, but what if, but what if, what if? And I realize that why that happens so often for me is because I am focused on what my hands can do. Do you relate with me in that way? So many days I wake up and my focus, it's not that I've completely forgotten about God, but my focus is on what my hands can do. My hands, my hands, my hands, nine times, my hands, my hands. There's some good in that, guys. I bear God's image just like you, so I'm a mixed bag of motives. So a lot of that is I want to do good. I want to see God move. I want to see the power of God around me. And so I want to create and I want to do ministry and I want to serve by my hands, my hands, my hands. And then I just find myself exhausted. And even within a church context, even within a Christian home context, I realize that somehow I have factored God out of the equation. And it's subtle, right? But I have just turned the focus onto me and what I can do by my own strength. And I've completely forgotten the God who has saved me and who has made me, as he reminded Moses. I have factored God out of the equation, and it leaves me confused, exhausted, bitter, and stuck. But God, in his mercy, responded to Moses at this time. We saw his mercy in the signs. We saw his mercy when he redirects Moses over and over again. He's saying, no, 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 it's not about you. And he lifts his gaze. He says, it's about me. I, I. And we even saw his mercy through the provision of Aaron. He could have said, he could have been a hard cuss towards Moses and said, Dag Nabbit, no, go, do it yourself. But in his paternal and kind mercy, he provides Aaron. And even in his sovereignty, already had Aaron on his way to meet Moses. But before we move on, guys, there's one more thing here that just blew me away, explaining the mercy of God. As, the, as Moses' uh, excuses kept coming and as he's dragging his feet, we had a conversation in our small group of, do you see God's patience wearing thin? Or what was your perception of God in this moment? And even in our small group, we had a difference of answers of, yeah, God sounds like he's about to snap, and rightly so. He sounds like a justified parent. But then other people were like, oh, no, he seems so patient here. And I think there's a little hint that we're supposed to see in verse 14. It says, quite clearly, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And so maybe you're like, see, here it is. This whole chapter was about God being angry. This is my fear right here is that God is a ticking time bomb, and this is his anger. And the anger that Moses was about to receive is the anger that I fear receiving all the time. Here comes the wrath. Here comes the temper. Well, we go back and we get close to the text and we read it again. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. In the ESV, kindled. Think of that word, kindling. At our old house, we had a fire pit down by some timber, and we made fires all the time for years. We lived in the house for seven years, and for seven years, I failed to be able to make a fire without my husband. Such a pathetic, like, wife thing. Like, I, uh, like if we were in the wilderness, we would die. Like, if, 
if it was on me. Like I talk a big talk, like I could be Survivor Jane or whatever, but the reality is I don't know how to make a fire, even though Matt has talked me through it a million times. But you start with kindling, right? Just that little bit of dry leaves and those tiny little dry sticks and you tear them up really, really small. And that's how you start a fire. It's slow. And it makes for a very small fire when it's kindled. I think that that might be intentional by the author here. God's anger was kindled against his chosen deliverer. Kindled. Just a little just a little angry, <laughs> just a little provoked toward his servant here. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. There's our observation. Guys, we've got to follow the process. Why do we care about this observation? If any of you have read Gentle and Lowly, this is one of my biggest takeaways from this book. I think that so often we believe that God is quick to anger and slow to kindness, and we could not be more wrong. Multiple places in the Bible say what this psalm says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving devotion. The Lord is good to all. His compassion rests on all that he has made. Ladies, we need to understand what we're thinking about God in life right now. Because if we believe that his kindness and his mercy is the exception in our life and his anger is the norm, we are so wrong. This book and multiple verses throughout the Bible actually reveal that God's natural bend and Jesus' natural bend toward his children is that of kindness and love. In fact, it's this idea that his kindness and love has to be held back, it has to be dammed up, otherwise it would consume us completely. But his anger according to the Bible, must be provoked. Do you get the difference there? And do you see it in Moses' story? His mercy, his natural bent towards us is mercy and kindness. His anger has to be kindled. It has to be provoked. What we think about God makes all the difference in how we interact with him and if we interact with him. This is our context now as we go into this weird paragraph. This context matters very, very much. So now we're going to kind of bravely peel back some layers on this next section. Okay, here, here's what I want to say, though. As we navigate the kind of the peculiarities of this, what you need to know is that this whole story about God almost killing Moses and and the firstborn being circumcised, this has stumped many scholars for many of centuries. Not that there's nothing for us to learn here, but the goal here is not to completely understand everything. There's weird little intricacies about it where like the pronouns, um, when you go from like the Hebrew to the Greek or something, I don't, I don't know all that stuff, gets really confusing. So there's times in this little paragraph where we actually don't know exactly who the he is in the story. Okay, so the goal here is not to perfectly understand everything as if we're going to take a test on it. But I want us to do is just pick away at it with things that we do know from the Bible. Okay, so we're going to start with this challenge of uh, the topic of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So I'm going to start in verse 21. 
So this is where the road trip has started. Moses is taking the family back to Egypt. And the Lord comes to Moses, and he's kind of just like a summary statement. He's saying, okay, you remember what's going on? You remember the plan? Probably not. Okay, let's review it. Here's, here's what we're doing. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Do you see that showdown language there? But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, let's talk first about this, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I think that we're going to keep learning about this as the story continues. I think Jen will hit on it. But what I think we need to just talk about to get us started is what God is talking about when he says this in verse 21. He says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. What he is referencing is something in the future. He's actually skipping a chapter, so to speak. He's skipping several scenes to the 10th plague, to the final plague. He is saying then that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. So actually, this idea of hardening is mentioned 20 times in this part of Exodus. And this is just so beautiful. The first 10 times that it is mentioned, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The second 10 times, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what do we get from that, guys? Because the way that we understand a big statement like this, that God is hardening someone's heart, can greatly determine what we think about God and can greatly determine if we see God as a just God, a wrathful God, or a loving God. The first ten times that it's mentioned, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it switches. In the second, ten, or the second five plagues, that God hardened his heart. I think part of what we are to understand is that Pharaoh's heart was already hard and that God knew that. So that God took a heart that was already hard and then God would harden it all the more so that his purposes would happen. Essentially so that Pharaoh would be pushed past the point of no return. So that God would get the glory so that all 10 plagues would happen, so that the people of God would be delivered and that the Egyptians would be destroyed. That's going to get us started as we start to see this language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Secondly, if we hope to understand this little story, we need to understand the biblical theology theme of circumcision. In brief tonight, what we, are going, what we need to understand, what we did in our homework is we went back to Genesis when we saw that this command to circumcise all of the little boys was given to Abraham. 
And it was said, if you don't do this, if you don't circumcise your sons on the eighth day, then they will be cut off from the people with nice little play on words there. So why does this matter? Well, there's so many reasons, but for tonight's, what we're going to hit on is that this was a way for them to be distinct. This was a way for them to be set apart as the people of God. Oh, you're circumcised? Oh, then you are a Hebrew. You are one of Yahweh's children. Oh, you're circumcised? Well, that's a sign that essentially their identity was supposed to be seen and external, but it was also intimate and private. There's more to it about like it being a, a rite of purity, tied to the, the promise that God would make them into a, a huge nation. And we've braved this topic before. You can giggle if you have to, but the part of the body that makes babies needed to be pure as a way to show that God's people, Abraham's seed, would be a royal priesthood, would be a pure people. So here we are in this scene, and we read that God intends to kill Moses because of something related to circumcision. Let's pick this apart together, guys. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Possibly what is happening here, guys, is that Moses was immediately struck with some kind of sickness. Possibly something like seizures is what some commentators say. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that he was gravely sick. He was incapacitated. He was nearing death. What do we read next? Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Okay, what do we need to know from this right here? It seems like Zipporah knows exactly what has provoked God's anger. She seems to, something has clicked in her mind, and she immediately springs into action. She takes a flint knife, not a metal knife, but a flint, a rock knife, and circumcises Gershom. Let's pause for a moment and just think about how old Moses is at this moment. He's been there for 40 years. We don't know for sure, ladies, but if you were picturing a nine-day-old boy getting circumcised, you were probably wrong. There is a chance he was 20, 30, heck, 40, and his mom circumcises him. Oh my gosh! It's so weird. And then it gets better, because then she takes the foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it. All right, what do we need to know about this? So we've got the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We're peeling back some layers, right? We're just trying to get a little bit of clarity. We're moving forward. We've got this idea of circumcision. We're moving forward bit by bit. How about this idea of firstborn? Okay, so we're in this weird paragraph, and we're like, what's going on? But I think the paragraph right before it gives us quite a few hints. Again, this repeated word, of firstborn, this repeated use of the word son. Actually, if you guys look at this whole page, it's all about family. It's all about family dynamics. There's a lot here that God is communicating about his family as they are on their way back to Egypt. So what we read in the chapter before from the Lord is that 
Israel is his firstborn son. Okay, just a couple things about this, guys. When he says Israel is the firstborn, that doesn't actually mean that he was literally the firstborn, and we get that from some stories in the patriarchs. But what that means is that Israel is preeminent in rank and in status. Okay, Israel is favored. Interesting, though, because God tells Moses to say this to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. Pharaoh's understanding is that he alone was the son of the gods. So it was a nice little jab at him. God is saying, because Israel is my firstborn son, you need to let him go. You need to free him. And why? So that he may serve me. So remember that for the coming weeks. That's important. That they may worship me. Why was God freeing his children? Freedom from means freedom to. But Pharaoh's hardened heart will refuse, and therefore what will happen? God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. It's a sneak peek at that 10th plague once again. So let's bring this all together and see how it helps us with this, guys. These three points coming together to help us understand what is important before Moses goes head-to-head with Pharaoh. Again, not an exhaustive list, but just some things that I learned this week. Moses, before he can go head-to-head with Pharaoh, needs to understand that while God has shown favor on Israel, God is not playing favorites. Do you see how the text shows that? Because of God's justice, what is happening here between these two paragraphs? He's, God is saying, Moses, if you don't obey, you will be treated just like the Egyptians. If you don't obey, if you don't circumcise your son like the Hebrew law says, then you will be treated as if you are an Egyptian. Later on, if Israel doesn't obey, they will be treated as if they are Egyptians. See, what is going on here is Moses is learning lessons that are going to be put into play when he leads the people through the plagues and through the exodus. He's saying, Moses, if you're going to throw down threats on Pharaoh's firstborn, you first have to understand that God has a claim on your firstborn as well. You see that? We're talking about Israel's the firstborn, Pharaoh's firstborn, and then boom, next paragraph, it's about Moses's firstborn. This is all connected. What else do we see? We see that Moses must learn obedience prior to the showdown with Pharaoh. We learn that even Moses, the chosen deliverer, is required to obey the Lord. We learn that it is crucial for Moses' family to identify as the children of Yahweh, not as the people of Midian. That means that Moses' son needs to look like a Hebrew. Moses' son needed to bear that distinct mark as a Hebrew before they head back into Egypt. So with all of the swirling, I find myself zooming in once again, four chapters in, on the woman in the story, on Zipporah. And I might, I might disappoint you a little bit in my take on this, but I would be curious if you agree or disagree. I asked some of you in text this week, what do you think? What do you think of Zipporah? Do you like her? Do you think Zipporah is, is depicted as the hero in this story or not? I got lots of good answers. Also know that if I text you, it's because I have no idea what the text means and I need some help with it. It's a team effort. 
But this is what I'm wondering, guys. Essentially, Gershom, the firstborn of Moses and Zipporah, he was being raised as a Midian. He was being raised uncircumcised so that he would look like a Midianite, not like a Hebrew. And you've got to wonder, did Zipporah know anything? And the text doesn't tell us, and so we're not going to over-speculate on that. But we do see that while Moses is totally down and out, Zipporah gets it real quick. She understands that what needs to happen is circumcision. And that is why she goes and she circumcises him. It makes me wonder, could she have been the reason why he wasn't circumcised in the first place? Could it be that, yeah, Moses is responsible. Moses was dragging his feet in obedience. But did she have a role in that as well? And the only reason I pause and make that speculation, guys, is because if that was possibly true, then the fact that she went so quickly to moving from omission or incomplete obedience to moving drastically to obey spoke to me. Because I thought, how many times and in how many ways do I have these moments where God makes it painfully clear that I am in disobedience? Even if it's secret and private and covered, so to speak. The moment that he makes it clear to me that there is an area of hidden sin or of a hard heart, I can be like Zipporah. And I can spring into action and obey, no matter how drastic it may be, no matter how ridiculous it may seem to the people around me. Because Zipporah, whether she was negligent before or not, she obeys here, and by her obedience, by her response to God's holiness and justice, she delivers Moses from death. Here we are, again, Moses being delivered by a woman. And I want to be like her. I have no interest in going off on some feministist hoorah right now. This is not a call for feminism right here. This is a call for confession and repentance when the Lord moves. Are there things in our life that are displeasing to the Lord, things that we know he has called us to, things that we see in his word? And he's inviting us to become a woman of action. And what will happen, ladies, is that we will bring life to the people around us, like Zipporah did to her family. Let's go one more layer on this story. Could it be that there's even more going on here? Could it be that in this story, there is even a hint at future images of God's mercy? Because in this scene, what did we see? We saw God's wrath was appeased by the spilling of blood. God's wrath toward Moses was averted, or you could say it was satisfied, when the firstborn's blood was laid on Moses. Well, guys, in the very near future of Moses' story, God is going to lay out a plan for the 10th plague. And the plan for that 10th plague 
is that there would be a firstborn lamb who would need to spill its blood, and that blood would be put on the door frames of the homes, making a covering for that family, making atonement for that family. The blood of the firstborn lamb would divert God's wrath against that family. Could it be that Moses was getting a little bit of a teaser for what was coming, for what was soon coming? Could it be that when he laid out in chapter 12 these details of the Passover, just details and details and details, could it have been because of what he experienced on the road into Egypt? Did he learn it experientially as God's wrath and God's justice almost took his life, but he was spared? But could it be that this story is actually pointing at something even bigger? Could it be that this story and the Passover are hinting at a greater exodus to come thousands of years later when the true and better Israel when the true and better firstborn of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth. Can you connect these dots? Because as we read the Gospels and we feel the story moving along, Jesus is here. This is what the whole Old Testament has been waiting for. The story is moving forward and we're getting excited as we see the seed of the woman, Jesus, nearing in on a showdown with the seed of the serpent, Satan. See, it's here on this other end of the story, far away from the story of Exodus, that we find a, a midday sky turn as dark as Moses' dark night was. And again, we see God willing to kill a firstborn. And maybe we stop and we say, what has happened to the storyline? Surely this is a joke. As we see Jesus carrying a cross up a hill. And we don't just breeze past it if we've heard it a million times, but we say, no, this can't be happening. The story is getting derailed. The story from Genesis onward, it's getting derailed. It's not just a speed bump. This can't be happening. How could the chosen man, the one whom God loves, be killed? But here's where the stories differ. Moses provoked the anger of God by his disobedience when he failed to obey perfectly. But Moses was just a mere arrow to God's true firstborn who obeyed with perfection. Jesus obeyed perfectly where we could not. He obeyed all the way to the point of death, death on a cross. Guys, Jesus was the firstborn who willingly bore the weight of the wrath of God. And by the shedding of his blood, a covering was made for our sin and our guilt. So let's go back to our very first question is this a story about the wrath of God, the justice of God, or did we find some mercy here? Because, ladies, it is in this very dark scene of judgment that we actually do find the mercy of God. 
in Exodus 4 and in the death of Jesus, we see that God's justice and God's love are two sides of the same coin. His mercy in this story in Exodus 4 is that he would provide a way out from death. His mercy is that he would provide a way for his holy anger to be appeased. His mercy is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the story of Exodus 4 and the story of the Passover and the story of the Gospels becomes our story as we become part of the family of God under the safety of his blood, that death, that God's wrath has passed over us because of Jesus' blood. And it is there in the safety of God's family in Christ that we learn to obey. It is there that we learn that it is not about us and what we can do, what we muster up for God, but it is about him. It is about his outstretched arm. It is about his power. It is here that we learn to obey. We learn within the family of God, in Christ, because of his blood, we learn to not fear the circumstances like Moses did, but to instead fear the Lord. Ladies, we are here and we learn to obey. We learn to silence the what-ifs. We learn to stop spinning our wheels, exhausting ourselves, just trying to move forward on our own strength. And we learn to become women of action. But not in the way that the world defines it, guys. We learn to become women of action, I believe, by confession and repentance. So what is it? What is it in your life between you and the Lord that you know is compromise, that you believe is inconsequential, an attitude or a bad habit or an addiction or bitterness or anger? What is it in your life that God is coming and he's saying, no, no more. No more. You know exactly what you need to do. You know how drastic of a measure needs to happen that you can walk forward in purity and serve him like Moses did. This is how we become women of action, and this is how we become free. Free from the sin that so easily entangles. Free from a sin that maybe we think is private or maybe we think won't hurt anybody, but the reality is is that God sees and God knows And the reality is, is that there is no sin that is not contagious to the people that we love and the people around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a just and holy God. And thank you for being a loving and merciful God. Your love toward us is overwhelming. Help us to know it. And Lord, you are slow to anger, and for that we are thankful. 
We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that Jesus took the punishment that we could not bear, that we might be your children. Would you help us to walk out in freedom, to live in confession, to bring into light the things that we would rather hide, not by our own strength, God, not by our own hands, but by your outstretched arm. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week.